All right, so thank you everybody for coming, um, for virtually joining us. This is the first of our webinars at the LSE Middle East Center. Before I hand it over to Jim, uh, my name's Nadine, by the way, I'm the events coordinator at the center. Uh, before I hand it over to Jim, just to say again, if you could all mute your microphones and turn off your webcam, um, and that's just so that we can ensure that the connection is as good as it can be um, to avoid any lagging. Um, the second thing is when we get to the questions and answers session or section, um, you can ask a question and all you have to do is raise your hand, which should be a little icon that's available in the chat box. Um, and then I'll, I'll let, I'll, I'll say your name and you can ask your question by unmuting your microphone. And if you'd like to, you can open your webcam, but once you've asked your question, please just go back to mute and turn off your webcam. If you feel more comfortable just typing the question, of course you can do that in the chat box as well. Um, and if you have any technical issues or any questions that you want to ask me specifically, you can do so in the chat box as well. Um, I think that's it from me. I'll just give Jim a little introduction and thank you again, Jim, for agreeing to be with us. Um, so Jim is a visiting fellow at the Middle East Center and he's also a journalist, a Middle East correspondent. Uh, Jim worked in book publishing in London in the early 70s and then moved to Beirut in January 1975, where he covered all phases of the Lebanese Civil War for the BBC and for many other radio and print outlets. He then moved to Bosnia in the early 1990s before arriving in Cairo as BBC Middle East correspondent in 1995. Jim then reopened the BBC Tehran Bureau and was correspondent there from 1999 to 2004. In 2005, he returned to Beirut and spent much time covering Iraq for the BBC, followed by the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt in 2011. Jim also provided a large proportion of the BBC's coverage of the Syrian uprising and civil war from the spring of 2011. Um, so once again, thank you, Jim, and I'll hand it over to you now. Thank you very much, Nadine. <clears throat> well, I don't know about everybody else, but I find this situation extremely weird. Here I am sitting in my little place in Beirut, surrounded by nobody, and uh, addressing you guys scattered all over the place. Um, I just think we've become a very strange species, that we have a virus that uh, appears somewhere in China that most of us have never heard of before, and then spreads to so far that the President of the United States is worried about losing the election because of it. Um, I think of my family and friends, my son in Australia, another son in Andorra, two daughters in Cyprus, friends in uh, California and Malaysia, all in exactly the same situation as me, locked down and <clears throat> with nowhere that we're allowed to go. So it's very, very weird. And I just think it's all very kind of surreal and quite hard to cast our minds back just even a few days or a few weeks to the situation before uh, we got where we are now, this kind of lockdown. Um, so to get back to get into the kind of Lebanese crisis that we that we were living so vividly before Corona came along and locked us all down, um, I'm going to put up a few pictures just to take us back, <clears throat> just a, a few months to the 17th of October, <clears throat> and if the technology works, I should be able to take you there. Just do something like. Right, <clears throat> so this is the 17th of October, suddenly um, an explosion in Lebanon, <clears throat> a huge uh, eruption of popular rage. 
Um, this is uh, Martyr Square in downtown Beirut, which is taken over by protesters, all waving the Lebanese flag, you'll note, red, white, and green. Um, and no other flags visible at all, because this was about Lebanon and the Lebanese, people who wanted to be Lebanese, not to be Sunni, Shiite, Druze, Christian, or whatever. They were all out there because uh, the last straw had happened, and that was when the government announced that it wanted to put a tax on WhatsApp. So not for nothing, um, do I at least, if not others, call this a WhatsApp revolution, because um, it has been very much fermented by or, or should we say, fertilized by the social media, especially WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and so on. Um, and it was the government's intention to put a tax on those free social media outlets, especially uh, WhatsApp, that was just the last straw for so many people because already the country was in the grip of a, a very stringent economic crisis. Uh, dozens of shops, restaurants, etc., businesses that had to close down probably something like 150,000 unemployed, new unemployed, uh, on the streets. And for Lebanon, that's a very large number. So when the government announced that, it was just a spontaneous eruption of rage, not just there in Marta Square in Beirut, but all over the country. And you can see the kind of masses who came out. That's again, Marta Square with the, the kind of, it's called the Hariri Mosque, it's actually the Muhammad al-Amin Mosque built by Hariri and uh, the body of the late assassinated Rafiq al-Hariri is, is uh, enshrined there. Um, and it wasn't just in Beirut that this happened. It was all over the country, Tripoli in the north, uh, Sidon and Tyre in the south, Baalbek in the, in the east, uh, Nabatir in the south as well. All over the country, people just erupted into the streets. They were just simply fed up. Um, and it's, it's really, as I say, hard to get back into that, that atmosphere. It was just such a kind of euphoric uh, atmosphere prevailing at that time. Um, all my friends were down there, for example, people I've known for 30, 40 years. Um, and you weren't thinking, I'm Christian, I'm Muslim, or whatever. <clears throat> they were all there denouncing the politicians, the corrupt sectarian politicians who'd driven the country, who'd bled the country dry, and who were now expecting the poor people to, to, to bail them out by putting taxes that were unsupportable. Now, I'd never seen anything like it, and nobody I know who's been through the whole 45 years that I've been here of crisis, um, never seen anything like it. Christians, Muslims coming together all over the country and denouncing their own leaders. This was a red line that had never been crossed before. We'd seen some fairly big demonstrations after, after Hariri, the, the father, was killed in 2005. There was quite a big display of the so-called Cedar Revolution in Martyr Square, uh, but it fizzled out really really very quickly. And I personally, I have to admit, I, I thought that this one would fizzle out too, um, because we saw not so long ago the, the garbage revolution, as it was called, people uh, turning out to denounce the government for not being able to even collect the garbage because the leaders are so busy messing up who'd get the profits of the, the lucrative deals that they couldn't actually sort it out, something very basic. But that fizzled out, and I thought this would too, but I was wrong. Um, a month later, for example, this was Independence Day, the 22nd of November uh, last year. Again, a huge turnout in Martyr Square. That, by the way, up there, if you can see my cursor, that is the statue of the martyrs who gave their name to the square, and I'll maybe explain who they were in a little bit. But if you look at the, the faces there, you'll see all kinds of people, old people, young people, these are from all over the country. And this was happening in 
Um, in Tripoli, it was happening in the south, it was happening everywhere, not just in Beirut. Um, what the, the kind of catchphrase that was going around at that time <clears throat> was kullun yani kullun. That means everybody means everybody. In other words, we want rid of the lot of you. Now, by this time, by Independence Day, um, Saba Hariri uh, had actually resigned, the Prime Minister. He'd resigned <clears throat> just 12 days into the so-called revolution. Um, and that had given people a lot of hope. They thought, well, that's one of the skittles down. Maybe the rest will tumble. Well, it frankly wasn't that, uh, it wasn't going to be that, that easy. Um, but if we look again and just, just remember those red, white, and green flags, because things are going to change. I'm going to come back and vision myself now for a minute. I think I am. I'm back. Yeah, sorry, I can't see myself, you see. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the, the revolution continued beyond my expectations, but um, it wasn't going to continue like that forever. It was colliding against some very big local and regional political realities, especially Hezbollah. Now, the reason it was colliding with Hezbollah is quite simple. Um, Iran saw what was happening here in Lebanon and in Iraq as part of a regional pushback against its influence by America and its allies in the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc. I didn't meet anybody in any walk of life during that period uh, who did not support it, even if they weren't going down to the demos. I'm here, for example, in my little part of Beirut. Uh, every evening at eight o'clock, people would go onto their balconies and do this. They would go out there and bang pots and pans in support of the revolution, so-called, and um, that was happening all over Beirut. Uh, now, those are distant days because that um, hasn't happened for a long time, not since about November, December. Um, but as I say, I was meeting businessmen. Uh, there was a businessman's, uh, there still is a businessman's kind of <clears throat> group or association supporting the revolution. They call themselves uh, I am a red line. In other words, the red lines to the leaders have been, uh, have been broken down, but um, I, the citizen, am a red line, and you should respect that. So, um, as I say, in those, at, the, at that time, there was virtually nobody that you found um, who was against it, but this movement, spontaneous as it was, and uh, almost, you could say, pure, because I know a lot of the people who were down there demonstrating, and they, they were not being paid by some foreign embassy to undermine Hezbollah or whatever. But the willy-nilly, <clears throat> this revolution or movement, uh, was colliding with powerful regional forces, and especially Hezbollah. So I'm going to go back to pictures now for a little bit. Um, I hope if I can share that. Uh, yeah, this is what happened fairly soon, um, fairly early on in revolution. Uh, Hezbollah and or its supporters, if not itself officially, <clears throat> and its allies, Amal, started appearing downtown and attacking uh, the protesters. And so suddenly you don't see green flags anymore. I mean, the, sorry, the red and white Lebanese flag, you see the yellow flag of Hezbollah or the green flag of Amal, that, that is Amal people and Hezbollah people going downtown to, to start. And they beat up demonstrators, they burnt tents and so on. And this happened in several waves. Quite a few people were injured. Nobody was killed during these attacks, but a lot of people were beaten up and the tents set on fire and so on. <clears throat> but um, of course, the people went away. I mean, the Hezbollah and, and Amal people went away and um, the, the protesters just set up shop again. Um, so uh, I'm going to go back to me now, I hope. 
so meanwhile, you can see that things are starting to change. The revolution started mutating. The violence that was happening put some people off. So numbers of people going downtown to uh, demonstrate started to, to fall away. Um, and the, the revolution itself sort of, you, know, you could say it sort of diminished to a hard core of, of activists. So then I'm going to go back to pictures again, uh, just briefly, if I can. Yeah, I hope, hope you're there. So we then saw in like January, February, um, the emergence of quite considerable violence. This is downtown in Beirut, people throwing rocks at the police and so on, police responding with uh, tear gas, rubber bullets and so on. Um, and quite a lot of scary scenes. Uh, I've never driven my Vespa through clouds of tear gas before, and that's quite an experience because you immediately tear up and you can't see anything, so you have to stop. Um, so this again is downtown in the heart of, heart of Beirut. Um, we have some pretty, pretty amazing scenes and some violence on the side of the protesters, but also you had people from what you might call the opposition, Hezbollah and Amal, turning up and causing violence and, and in a way trying to get the revolution a bad name by instigating violence. So, uh, yeah, so you had um, scenes which really put a lot of people off. And that's one reason why the revolution in terms of numbers uh, stopped attracting quite such large crowds. Now, of course, because of what was happening with the banks, uh, the banks were also very much a target for what was going on. Um, I was going to show you a picture of a smashed bank just around the corner from me, but I'll probably lose it on the way there, so I'll forget about that. Um, all of this was happening while a new government was in the process of formation after Saad Hariri resigned. Um, there was a long period where they kept floating names and the names would be shot down until finally at the name of Hassan Diab, a, a Sunni working at the American University of Beirut, a vice president there, uh, was nominated as prime minister. He managed to get enough support, but it was a kind of weird formation of government. It was supposed to be technocrats, but the fact is that the government was essentially appointed by the political powers that wanted to take part in this. And in fact, the Sunnis under Saad Hariri stayed out of that. So you have the strange phenomenon of a Sunni prime minister nominated basically by the Shia, by Hezbollah, its ally Amal, and by their uh, Christian allies, General Aoun and his free patriotic movement uh, headed by his son-in-law, Gibran Basile. So they're the ones who are actually behind this government, which they call a a monochrome government because it has that backing behind it. But te technically speaking, these are technocrats with no uh, overt party affiliations. So there is, there was a new, uh, a new uh, government that came into being. And at the time that we had the Corona lockdown, uh, the government had been in place for a little while, and some people, I guess another reason why the numbers of protesters was dwindling, um, was simply quite a lot of people were thinking, isn't it time, let's just give these guys a chance. Uh, I'm going to go back to some pictures now to show the impact of corona. Um, Oh, that's the bank I wanted to show you before, just around the corner from here on Hamra, smashed up during one of the demonstrations. And this is what downtown looks like now. That's the Hariri Mosque or the Mohammed Alamin Mosque in Martyr Square, deserted around it. That's the Martyr's Monument. And you can see 
a sign saying confidence despite corona the, the thorough the revolution and underneath that it says goes on um, but in fact the place is pretty much deserted um, I was going to tell you about the martyrs very briefly as a side, just a little side issue. The martyrs were people about, oh, in fact, 25 young Lebanese, mainly young Lebanese men, who were hanged by the Turks in 1915 and 16 in Martyr Square, which at that time was not called Martyr Square, um, uh, because they were nationalists and this was the Ottoman Empire trying to um, basically floundering as it was uh, in, the, in the grip of collapse. So that's why the martyrs are there giving their name to Martyr Square. Um, meanwhile, you can see what Corona has done to, to life in Beirut. That is Hamra, just around the corner from where I am. And that was yesterday when I went out to change money, because money changers are the only people uh, out in the street who are allowed to operate. Um, so it's basically lockdown. Uh, now I'm going to come back to you in vision, I hope, if this technology is working. Ping. Right, I can see men. <coughs> Um, so life has gone into deep freeze here, and so has the revolution, uh, pretty much, uh, as everywhere else. So I want to flip back a little bit and sort of just look at why the revolution started in the first place. Um, this crisis in which the country is, of which, no, the country is in the grip of, um, basically is not the revolution. The revolution is a, a product of that crisis, and it may have speeded up the crisis, as indeed the coronavirus is going to do, but it's not the reason of it, it's a symptom of it. Um, and the malaise that is afflicting Lebanon is basically economic and financial, but with its roots in the sectarian political system, which has bled the country dry. Um, now, a lot of people, including myself, who have been through everything that's happened since 1975 here when the civil war broke out, and we're talking about invasions, assassinations, wars, sectarian wars, uh, wars of Israel, etc. All of us have the feeling that this is an existential crisis for Lebanon, much more than any of those other things that happened before. And that sentiment is, is shared by people I know who've been through everything here. They feel that this is going to the core of Lebanon. All the other crises were in some way externally based. This is about Lebanon and its identity and its core. And the core of Lebanon is its banking system. <clears throat> and the banking system is in very serious trouble. There's a very grave economic and financial crisis, um, which has its roots in the political setup where um, the, the, the various sectarian barons, if you want to call them that, the, the warmongers or war, <coughs> warlords have been basically wrestling at the trough to get their share of the proceeds uh, up to their necks in corruption. And very few people would actually deny that. Um, so the, the crunch came quite simply because of this. When the war stopped, you had the period of reconstruction under Rafiq al-Hariri in the 90s, where vast sums of money were coming into the country, uh, a lot of it loans, uh, and being used to finance reconstruction, but also a huge proportion of it went into the, the pockets of the corrupt. Um, when debts became due, more money was borrowed at very high interest rates until you had a situation where the, the ratio of debt to GDP was almost world record. It was 100, 170%. So when it came to repaying loans and things, uh, the government was basically bankrupt. Uh, there was no more money. Um, and that's why you had this crisis where they desperately trying to scrape up some cash. They tried to put a tax on WhatsApp, uh, and that's what triggered this whole thing. But by the time 
the so-called revolution started in October. Already, many businesses had gone to the wall. Uh, many restaurants, something like 750 or so restaurants, had already closed. And of course, the arrival of the revolution, so-called, uh, caused a, a further spinning down, a kind of downward spiral of that. It, it accelerated the whole process of disintegration. Um, and the banks closed for two weeks at that time. So again, coming back to why the revolution kind of had dwindled by the time of the, um, the arrival of coronavirus, one reason is because the banks closed for two weeks uh, during at the beginning of the revolution. When they reopened, they put very severe restrictions on how much money people could take out. So practically everybody was plunged into a situation where they're spending a large part of their day just trying to get a small amount of their own money out of the banks. Um, in fact, there's a kind of a black humor joke going around about saying that at the beginning we were saying, give us back the stolen money or get back all the funds that were stolen by the leaders and, and probably salted away abroad, bring it back. And then we finished by saying, could we just have a bit of our own money, please? You know, so it, that, that's how it came, <clears throat> came about, that people were in such a desperate situation. Um, let me just consult my notes here to see where I should be going. Um, so as I say, it was largely a revolt against corruption. Uh, but the, the, the danger of a banking collapse is very much there. Um, and this is why people are regarding this as a, a really um, existential problem or, or dilemma. Uh, you can imagine a situation where Lebanon has already, as it has, defaulted on its uh, international financial obligations on the 9th of March. It defaulted on its euro bond commitments uh, for the first time ever. Uh, and that is going to have a, a very deleterious effect on Lebanon's credibility in the financial markets and so on. It's now going into negotiations with the IMF and other uh, financial bodies uh, over rescheduling of uh, something like 30 billion remaining debts. Um, and its position is very much undermined by the fact that it has uh, defaulted on, on those euro bonds. Um, just to give an idea of how little confidence there is now in the Lebanese banking sector, uh, it's reckoned that there's at least $5 billion or $6 billion in people's homes in cash under their mattresses simply because they don't trust the banks anymore. So uh, translate that onto into international financial negotiations. And you can see how hard it's going to be uh, for Lebanon to get the cash injection. Uh, well, first of all, debt relief, but also a cash injection. It needs something like 10 or $20 billion, uh, just to kind of keep going. So there is a universal predictions that when we come out of this corona crisis, the, the kind of crisis of the economy and finance is going to be um, very much exacerbated. In other words, um, we're going to see a lot more unemployed. I mean, all the restaurants and shops and businesses are currently closed down. How many of them are actually going to be able to reopen? A lot of them were trembling on the brink already. This may push them over the edge. So what is Lebanon doing? I mean, we hear in the UK of incredibly generous packages being offered by the government to bail out or keep going all kinds of employers and people getting money to, to stay in their jobs. Well, here there's obviously, because the government is broke, there's not too much it can do. But <clears throat> what is happening, because there is huge international concern that poverty here has, has um, deteriorated or, or, or risen dramatically in the last few weeks, um, there is uh, a concern 
on the part of the international community. So what's happening? And it, it is an attempt to, to head off kind of chaos that you could see in the streets if, if they're flooded by angry unemployed. What's happening is that the World Bank, the UN, and the central bank here are working on a scheme which is going to be rolled out very soon, whereby 200,000 of the poorest Lebanese families will be somewhat shamefully given the same as Syrian refugees were given, which is a kind of plastic card that can be charged up and could be used to get cash money out of bank machines, but also uh, food to keep them going. So that's for at least 200,000 families. So perhaps as many as a million Lebanese uh, should benefit from that probably fairly meager relief, but it's going to cost uh, several hundred thousand, uh, sorry, hundred million dollars um, paid for by the international community. Uh, <clears throat> the central bank is also uh, working on a scheme uh, whereby the banks will give loans to businesses at 0% interest for three months uh, so that they don't have to lay workers off. So a lot is being done, but nonetheless, um, it's obviously not going to be enough. There are fears of kind of mass unemployment. Um, and uh, just a little footnote that the banks themselves have offered $5 million to help with the crisis, which is um, not a very huge sum as thing these things go and has caused some derision um, on the... Uh, on the part of many people. Um, the other thing that's very much in the pipeline is the idea of a haircut, a financial haircut uh, for people with large sums of money in the banks. Now, of course, everybody's very worried about that, but anybody with less than about $200,000 probably has nothing to worry about. Uh, a lot of the haircut, if it happens and it's being discussed, uh, would be for things like government bonds, treasury bonds and paper and so on. Uh, and perhaps for the 10% of the the biggest depositors uh, in the banks. Um, it's worth noting that 60% of the depositors here own just 1% of the actual money in the banks. In other words, there are an awful lot of people with small amounts of money in the bank who may be close to the breadline or certainly at the bottom of the scale. Um, and they will certainly not be touched from what I can understand. Um, so let's look all of that is, is to say that basically when we come out of this lockdown, the factors that gave rise to the revolution, the crisis, is not only just going to still be there, it's not have been frozen, it'll have got worse because of the, the lockdown. There's no question about that at all. Um, let's look at briefly at what has happened to the revolution uh, and why it lost support up to that point when it entered lockdown. Um, first of all, after Hariri resigned, there was a feeling that, ooh, as they say, the first of the skittles have fallen, let's get rid of the rest of them. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Um, people dug their heels in, <clears throat> um, and there was no kind of domino effect that they had hoped for. The, all the other leaders, Berri, the Amal chief who runs the parliament, uh, General Aoun, the president, all the other leaders are still very much in place. Um, another reason that kind of support waned um, is preoccupation with, with living business, you know, queuing for hours in banks to get $200 uh, and trying to make that last for the week because that's all you could get for a week. Um, and also within the revolution itself, it's caught in a kind of contradiction because um, there is very much a feeling that they don't want leaders to emerge. The, the whole concept of leadership here is so contaminated that anybody who stood up 
uh, and said, I'm speaking for the revolution, was immediately cut down. Uh, so they're talking about, or they were talking about, and still are, uh, through social media, etc., talking about uh, taking part in the next elections, for example, and that being a way into the political system. Um, that's in 20, 20, 2022, in a couple of years' time. But they're not organized. They have no leaders, no structure. Uh, there's something like, according to the AUB's think tank, the Assam Forest Institute, um, 51 groups involved, um, of which about 20 are seriously engaged in political stuff, um, but they're not organized. They haven't produced any kind of leaderships or spokesmen or anything. It's a kind of amorphous, and I'm sure PhD theses will be, theses will be written about how social media have emerged as not just mobilizing, but a, a real kind of, uh, it's a kind of organic way of, of leading a, a revolution, but it's a very collegiate thing. There's no leaders out there who, who are standing up and saying, I want to stand for election. So um, the, the, there is, as I say, that's another reason I think why they've lost some support, because the initial slogan, Kullan Yani Kullan, they all have to go, was obviously unrealistic, but it hasn't been replaced by realistic goals, apart from perhaps taking part in the elections when they eventually come around. But meanwhile, they're not organ organized enough to do anything. Um, and as well as that, there is a certain sentiment among a lot of people I've talked to, my friends who were going down and taking part in the revolution, saying, well, the government isn't perfect and it's kind of one-sided in terms of the people who put it there, but let's give it a chance, let's see what it can do. Um, so that, in a way, brings us back to the, to the government itself <clears throat> and how well it's perceived as, as doing. And I think most people would say that it's done a reasonable job. Um, it hasn't had an easy uh, run. Um, I think, I, I mean, I've talked to people in the so-called revolution who admit that they were wrong to press the government not to pay that, I mean, to, to pressing it to default on its obligation, the $1.2 billion to, of uh, euro bonds, um, because the argument was, why should we be giving this money to foreigners when Lebanese are in dire straits? Well, um, my friend at the central bank said he had people from the revolution coming to him and he explained to them, they, they would say, we haven't got money to buy milk for our children. And he said, yes, but if we default, you're going to bring the banking system down and then you won't be able to buy your milk anyway. And a lot of people actually took that argument on board. The, the problem may be actually that the central bank is very poor at explaining to the public uh, why it does what it does. But in fact, it wanted to pay that. It wanted to meet its debts, its obligations on the night of the march. It was the government pressed by the revolution and by Hezbollah and its allies uh, who stopped it happening. So um, that was kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So the government may have made that mistake if, if it was. I believe it was, and other people do, but not everybody. Um, yeah, we're talking about uh, the government's performance. Uh, in a way, Corona has been a kind of godsend for the government because it's got the revolution off the streets for one thing. There's no more uh, scenes of violence, tear gas and, and uh, hoses being used downtown, etc. So it's given them a sort of breathing space. It's allowed them to appear in a kind of authoritative, masterful role. And they've done that pretty well, I think. If I look at my iPhone, for example, in the top left-hand corner where you get the signal strength indicator, it says stay home. I mean, they've been very proactive about making people stay indoors, uh, coming off the streets. They were very quick to take um, restriction measures. And the result has been a pretty good score. There's only, I can't remember what the latest figures were, 
um, very few, less than 200, I think. It was actually 391 cases and seven deaths. Um, so that, that is actually pretty modest, and it's being kept under tight control. The restrictions on movement have been tightened. Uh, there's a sort of overnight curfew now from 7 p.m. till 5 a.m., and people are generally uh, respecting that. So it's allowed the government to, um, to impose itself, if you like, to appear authoritative, decisive, and so on. And they've been good about uh, briefings from the health ministry and all that kind of thing. Um, meanwhile, uh, we, and we have to look at what the result is going to be when the, the restrictions come off and what the implications are for the revolution itself. Some people believe that the inevitable wave, plus I should add also coming back to the financial situation, that in the best case, and it's inevitable that there will be a double-digit um, uh, recession after the it, you know, after the, the, the kind of wraps come off, um, we'll be going into maybe 10, 11, 12, 13%. In other words, the economy is shrinking uh, by that figures, which would have been unthinkable some time ago. So that, that is another reason why there's going to be waves of unemployed. Now, will that benefit the so-called revolution? Some in the revolution believe yes, because it will be, there will be many thousands more angry, jobless people flooding into the street. They think that will give them a boost. Other people think it may have the opposite effect, that people will be so um, inundated with financial problems, with just staying alive, with uh, making ends meet, that they won't have time for, for revolution. Um, and that because the revolution has been sort of leaderless and, and become rather unfocused, it won't be the kind of vehicle for popular anger against a government which has, by and large, as I say, done what most people regard as a, as a reasonable job. <clears throat> there are other reasons why things or signs that things have been going a bit against the revolution. There was a struggle, for example, over the independence of the judiciary. Uh, one of the main demands of the revolution was that the judiciary should be truly independent, but the latest appointments in fact, rather negate that. Uh, also, um, it's not only the government that's been given a bit of a breathing space. Um, also, the leaders who had been really set back by what happened since October, they have made something of a comeback in their own areas. So they've been reasserting themselves. Um, so that's going to make it even more difficult, I think, for the um, for the revolution to, to take off in the way that it was before, those scenes with hundreds of thousands of people out there all waving Lebanese flags. Um, so, but having said that, and knowing all that, nobody foresaw what happened on October the 17th. So when the thing takes off again, when the clamps come off, when we can all go back on the streets and do what we want, um, nobody can predict what's going to happen because nobody really knows how severe the economic crisis is going to be, what form anger may take, and so on. Um, but going beyond, and again, we're getting back to why this is so existential. Uh, a good friend of mine who is a very prominent banker and who's trying to advise the government and get it out of this, says that he, he likens it to a very sick patient who's got pneumonia and he's dying of it. The pneumonia was caused by cancer. Uh, and cancer is the, the most serious thing, and it may or may not be treatable in the long run, but the immediate problem is pneumonia. He's going to die of pneumonia if he doesn't get oxygen. Well, pneumonia is the financial crisis. If there's not a cash injection soon and, and time is running out, 
um, the patient will die and the, the banks will collapse and the army won't get paid and the government will stop functioning. That's what lies ahead, a completely uncharted territory. That has to be dealt with first. Then you can look at the cancer, which is the political system, the sectarian system, which has allowed leaders, unaccountable leaders, uh, operating systems of patronage and um, so on. Who to to basically milk the country dry? Uh, now my my friend likens it to I, I'm reminded of the old adage, which is Lebanon is a bird with two wings, and it needs those two wings to fly. That was valid in the old days after independence in 1943, when you basically had Christians and Muslims, um, and of course a bird needs two wings to fly. But now uh, since the 80s, when the, the phenomenon of, of you know, serious dissensions between the Sunni and Shia Sunni, uh, Muslims came up with uh, Iran supporting the Shia and uh, Saudi Arabia supporting the Sunnis. Um, Lebanon has three wings, so it's virtually impossible to take any kind of decision. And a bird with three wings, I can assure you as a bird watcher, I've never seen a bird with three wings, but if such a thing existed, um, it certainly wouldn't be able to fly, no question about it. Um, so that is the kind of fundamental uh, political problem or, or the, the, the whole setup of Lebanon and the sectarian system, power-sharing system. Um, my friend had tried to sort out both the Greek and the Cypriot uh, financial problems, and he said, yes, there was sickness in the systems there, in the, in the financial systems, in the economy, but the politics was okay. You had a majority and you had a minority. You didn't have Christians, Muslims, and uh, Shia and Sunnis, all, who all had to agree on anything uh, before it could happen. So um, if you want to get a radical solution in Lebanon, as, as this, the kind of solid governance that people want and which brought everybody onto the streets either physically or certainly uh, in, with moral support in which everybody here agrees that the corrupt sectarian power sharing system doesn't work it's dysfunctional it has to be fixed but are the people in charge who are part of that system are they going to fix it no it has to be fixed by people coming from outside is the revolution going to be able to win votes in the next election get a substantial number of seats in Parliament so that at the very least it can be a player among the six or seven other major factions that can at least have a say. I don't know, that's very hard to say. It's a very, very long shot, I think. Um, but if we look at what the revolution has brought at the end, what has it changed? There is, uh, if you like, or if you're optimistic, a new political culture, and that is that uh, one of much more, it's not going to say that everybody's transparent, but everybody's now under scrutiny, especially with the explosion of social media. It means that there's a lot more scrutiny, and as soon as anybody notices anything they regard as suspect, it's all over the social media, and people may be gathering outside their houses, the houses of the officials making demonstrations. So there is a new climate of scrutiny that was not there before. And that may be certainly one of the, the major achievements of the so-called revolution. Um, I'm going to stop on Lebanon now because I've gone on probably too long um, <coughs> on that. Uh, I've said nothing about Iraq and Iran, but 
um, in both you have a sort of similar, similar situation where cooperative protests have been suppressed in the name of coronavirus, uh, allowing the authorities to impose themselves. Iraq, you have a, a very severe political crisis. There's a prime minister to nominate who has not been able to form a government. Uh, he's got another couple of weeks or so to do so constitutionally, but probably won't be able to because most of the Shia parties are against him. Uh, Iraqi friends believe that um, the country's future basically depends on what happens between Iran and the US. And if anybody had been hoping, hoping that uh, Corona would act as a bridge between the two countries, as indeed, in a sense, the BAM earthquake of uh, 2003, uh, George W. Bush actually relaxed sanctions so that help could be sent. Um, in fact, Corona has, if anything, embittered the relationship or the, the vibes between Tehran and Washington. So I don't think there's going to be any great breakthrough uh, in relations on that front. And meanwhile, things are just as tense as they were between the US and Iran. So Iraq's future <clears throat> with um, oil prices way down to like below $20 a barrel, which is extraordinary, uh, a political crisis, um, completely unresolved, <clears throat> and its future up in the air. My Iraqi friend <laughs> said, all we need now is an earthquake. Um, and God, uh, goodness, let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, so Iraq very much um, under wraps, as it were. When the, when the the curfew that's been imposed in Baghdad comes off, I think the <clears throat> the revolution there will continue uh, as strong as before. <clears throat> Equally in Iran, um, the government has managed to keep things under wraps, but it hasn't performed well in this crisis. And I think that when again the corona crisis has passed uh, we're probably going to see more unrest because the economic situation aggravated of course by american sanctions um, is going to be felt even more strongly because of the shutdown and resentment against the gov government is also probably going to be uh, even stronger so i think there again we're going to see corona having a very damaging effect so at that point i think i've probably yacked on for too long um, and uh, it's time perhaps to go to some questions if anybody's still there, I've only been talking to myself for the last half hour. <clears throat> yeah, I think what we'll do is if everyone can ask their questions in the chat box, that would be right. great. So I think <clears throat> there are three questions already. Um, Jim, can you see them? I, I, my chat box seems, oh, there it is there. Yes, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, gotcha. Okay. We've got three. So we can start with the first one if you just scroll up. Ramsey Maita, everyone. Um, that seems to have been a, I don't see a question mark on that. <clears throat> um, I mean, Ramsey is saying that, uh, that there should be much better coordination regionally, etc. cetera. Um, and international funds to rescue blah, 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 in the same boat. Yeah, I agree with that and uh, wouldn't take issue, but I don't see a question either. So let's look at Chris Doyle. <clears throat> Uh, we're looking at impact on Syria and the Syrians, yes. Um, good question about the refugees here. There is, of course, a huge concern that it could reach the communities here. So far, unless something's changed in the last couple of days, um, there have been no cases of uh, corona among either the Palestinian or the Syrian refugee communities, uh, which, of course, are, are pretty big. The Palestinians in camps are roughly probably 200,000 or a bit less. Syrians, they're not formally in camps. They have what they call informal settlements, and only about 20% of the Syrian refugees, who are roughly probably a million and a half, but nobody really knows. Um, only about 20% are actually in informal settlements in the Bakar and elsewhere. Now, so far, as I say, probably because these communities, they're, they're not 
the ones who are dropping, jumping on planes and going through airports and catching bugs. Um, so um, they have so far been exempt, and the, the NGOs who are looking after them have been very, have been very careful from the outset not to send in people uh, to these communities who might have been contaminated themselves. Uh, they've also spread a lot of uh, propaganda. Um, they've been, uh, you know, obviously leaflets and, and um, hygiene kits and so on have been dispensed early on. So measures have been taken to try and preempt it. At the moment, if there were to be any casualties or, or infections among the refugee population, um, they they would get the same treatment as Lebanese because the, the hospital, mainly the Rafiq Hariri Hospital in South Beirut, uh, is, has not yet reached capacity. And other hospitals are being prepared, such as the AUB Hospital and others, Hotel Dieu and so on. They've been prepared um, for a crisis, uh, but not yet... Um, anything like reach capacity. Um, I think the crunch point would come if they do reach capacity and then you're going to find refugees perhaps uh, at the back of the queue, uh, if there is a queue, um, for, for treatment. So, um, so that I think, as I say, a lot of concern, but so far, uh, no actual casualties. Uh, in Syria itself, they have had a couple of cases, I think, um, and obviously conditions, of course, I should add that conditions in these settlements here and the Palestinian camps would be rife for, they'd be absolutely suitable for a spread of the virus if it did get in there. So everybody's crossing fingers very much uh, to um, ho hoping that it wouldn't do so. Um, let me just look at uh, Chris's question again. Uh, right, oh gosh, lots of questions there, Chris. Um, has a move. Yeah, I, I can't tell you about financial movements of regime money moving out of Lebanon into Syria. I'm not across that. And um, the crisis here impacting Syria, I think Syria is so involved with its own problems that it's not particularly um, being affected by what's happening here. But um, as I say, also, if the combat zones in Syria are probably much like refugee populations here a little bit isolated in the sense that there's not a huge amount of coming and going, except, of course, by NGOs bringing in aid, which could be a bit of a poison chalice. Um, so that's the best I can do for Chris. Let me have a look now here. <clears throat> um, a long, complicated statement from, uh, from Ramsey here. Uh, about the economy. Um, something I should have said about that, if we're looking at ways of solving the underlying Lebanese crisis is that the economy is also all wrong. Um, it is not productive. It has been basically um, based on services, tourism, finan uh, financial services and so on, uh, all very intangible. So that when it comes to things like agriculture and industry, <clears throat> there's been very little investment in it. And that is one of the structural things that, that is wrong with the Lebanese economy. Um, again, coming rather out of the, the, the way things have been mismanaged politically, which is creating a kind of rentier economy where people just put lots of money in the banks, get lots of interest and can put their feet up and not bother to actually do any productive work. So that, again, is, is something very much that needs to be um, to be restructured. And it's to be hoped that the government, when it's making its pitch for the, the cash injection it needs from the IMF and so on, um, it needs to have a realistic plan for, for reshaping uh, the economy. 
Um, another issue, of course, that I've only touched on very lightly is the business of Iran, of, sorry, of America and Hezbollah. The government here, despite the fact that it's supposedly technocratic, um, is tinged by Hezbollah. Hezbollah is the major shareholder in the government, if you like. Uh, now, will the Americans allow international funds uh, to come into Lebanon when they see it as perhaps um, propping up a Hezbollah-led government or... or, or quietly behind the scenes dominated government. Um, the Americans have already looked like they're going to deny or veto at the IMF uh, Iran's, Iran's request for $5 billion in emergency relief to help combat the coronavirus in Iran. So if they're taking that kind of attitude directly against Iran, it's possible that they will extend that to Lebanon and regard this as a heavily tainted government that they wouldn't want to help subsidize. Um, so that's something I think we need to watch out for. I'll look at another question here. <coughs> um, Andy Simons is asking, will, will contributions to Palestinian refugee charities in Lebanon go through? It seemed to work for my end. Um, I think they would, yes. Um, <coughs> the banking system is sort of working. Um, the banks are supposedly open for business along with money changers and that's about it uh, plus of course pharmacies and uh, food shops supermarkets and so on so the banks are functioning and um, uh, certainly bank transfers all that kind of thing most of the bank business is is not done you know directly by people marching into the banks or, or pulling money out of um, ATMs and so on, or, or changing money on the streets, although that gets a lot of publicity when the value on the streets goes up or down, mainly up at the moment of the, the dollar. Um, so yes, the bank transfers, and I think will go through uh, with no problem. Um, let's look at Jonathan Harris in Belfast. What my view does the reaction of government premised on secondary and power sharing do they need crisis in order to function effectively? Um, sort of, yes, you could say that. I mean, often here, because of the three wings, as it were, you do have a paralysis that sets in on any issue, especially if it involves money and a trough into which snouts could be shoved in order to filter off the proceeds. Um, so, yes, I think that in the current situation, it's probably easier for the government to take decisions because um, there is a, a kind of huge crisis. And unless, um, unless they're addressed, you know, the country can go down the tube very, very quickly. <clears throat> but I think you're right to suggest if, implicitly that uh, once the real pressure is off and once the corona thing is out of the way, and once things get, if things ever get back to normal, and nobody's saying they will, um, we could see that same kind of paralysis. And the, the big question behind the scenes is whether Lebanon is capable of reforming itself. It's a bit like elections in even the UK or the US. The election systems can be very flawed. Um, but the people who are elected by them are the ones who have the power to change them. And they're hardly likely to do that if they're sawing off the branch on which they're sitting themselves. So I think that that applies to Lebanon very much, that it's hard to see the people who are benefiting from this system actually getting to the roots of, that are needed, you know, digging out the roots that need to be sorted out in order to change and, and give the country the proper, honest, clean government governance that, that it very much needs. Um, now let's look at Alexander Patterson. Now, who's that? Uh, impact on Lebanon. Everyone's 
trouble. Oh dear, another big thoughtful question. <clears throat> yep. Um, they have, I think, got a couple of cases in Libya. There are a few cases now in Libya and a few in Yemen and a very few in Syria. Uh, the impact of the whole thing on them. It's really hard to say. that the, the, One of the problems is there's so little news. I mean, if you turn on practically any a news bulletin these days, it's it's 98% corona and very little anything else. So what's actually going on in Syria is, has become somewhat smothered under the blankets. Um, I doubt personally if the passing of the COVID crisis is going to actually have much impact. They may have got a bit frozen at the moment. Um, there, as I say, there's very little information about what's really going on. I mean, it's not the same kind of blanket coverage we used to have, but there, there was this ceasefire around Idlib that predated the corona shutdown. So that presumably is, is relatively okay. Um, Yemen and Libya, again, Libya, there's been heavy shelling, so it doesn't seem to have had that much um, effect on Mr. Haftar and his friends in tamping down um, the conflict there. Uh, Yemen, I'm slightly unsighted on, I must admit, but I honestly can't see the corona thing having a huge effect, and I'll probably be proven wrong within minutes, but um, that's the way I see it just at the moment. Let's look at John Dewey. How does corona elections affect Israel-Palestine links? Yeah, in uh, one of the things that has emerged from the crisis has been quite a bit of cooperation between the Israeli and Palestinian health authorities, which I suppose you could say is a good thing, but um, it's not going to affect the politics of the situation, I don't think. I mean, Israel is sort of paralyzed politically at the moment because they, of course, they have a very severe election problem. Um, so they're not really being terribly proactive politically. But I don't see that, uh, you know, on, on a practical levels like that and day-to-day -day stuff like water and health and so on, there can be levels of cooperation, but which don't carry over into the political arena. So I rather doubt that um, we're going to see any great uh, breakthroughs <clears throat> because of corona on Israeli-Palestinian relations. I don't think the doves of peace whether with two wings or three, you're going to start fluttering over, over Gaza and uh, all the rest of it. Um, let's look at Ramzi Maid there. The key lifeline for Lebanese expats and diaspora remittances. Will that be oppressed? Yes, it will. Um, I don't know if everybody can see the questions, but um, Ramzi's asking whether um, the low oil price is going to impact uh, Lebanon and others. And that, that's very much the case. It was already to quite a large extent happening that Lebanese in the Gulf and elsewhere were losing jobs uh, because oil prices have been down for quite some time. Now they're collapsing because of Corona. And um, another part of the phenomenon here that I didn't touch on but should have is the fact that partly because of the revolution and the underlying crisis of jobs and the economy, Many young people have been emigrating or trying to emigrate. Of course, this is a country of emigration. There are far more Lebanese outside. I don't have the exact figures in my head, but far more outside than there are here, here in the country. I think it's 4 million here and 12 million outside, maybe more. Um, but in fact, that's one of the, the reasons that the Lebanese economy somehow kept going when it was dysfunctional and that was the, the funds coming in repatriated funds coming in from Lebanese abroad well those have been much less they have continued to come um, but the fact that you know the Lebanese young people who now um, are talking about leaving and, and many have since the revolution started many 
with institutions closing down and so on, many have said, we don't see a future here. We have to leave to go to America or whatever um, to get out to, to have a, a decent life. Um, and I think, you know, the corona thing plus the collapse of the oil price is going to have an effect on that. If you're a young Lebanese, you want to go to the Gulf or wherever to make money, they're probably not going to be the jobs. Uh, although, as I say, quite a number of people I know have left and um, a lot of students especially uh, either thinking of have already or are talking about about leaving. So that's a very major thing because the country is going to lose its best and brightest. And that structurally, again, or organically, is going to be a very major factor in the country's future and, and, and not a good one. Um, let's look at Tarek Lebanon. So last week, yes, and I thought somebody would ask about that. Amr Fakhouri. <coughs> I, I don't think it was, to be honest, that there was any connection between the Fakhouri affair and the release of the French. Um, I don't think you can talk about the West in that way because uh, America and France don't exactly work in lockstep these days. I mean, America didn't even tell France and its EU partners that it was cutting flights. They just sort of did it. Um, so I don't think that was the case. Um, the Fahuri affair, this, in case people aren't familiar, this was a man who was accused of being the chief torturer at Khiam Prison in South Lebanon in the 1980s. Um, and he obviously fled to Israel when Israel pulled out in 2000. And um, he then was, uh, he, he received a, a sentence here, I think, of 20 years, uh, and then pitched up here when that sentence has expired, having been in America and got American citizenship. So um, President Trump and so on were campaigning. They regarded him as some kind of political prisoner, although he was wanted very much by sort of Hezbollah and its allies as a kind of war criminal or a, somebody guilty of crimes against humanity. And the ways in which they could keep, technical ways they could keep the case going because some people were missing under his, uh, on his watch, as it were, people that had been seen being stuffed into his car boot, apparently. Um, so they could say the case is ongoing. So he was uh, the subject of a kind of tug of war um, between Hezbollah and its Shia supporters, who very much suffered uh, at Khiam prison, uh, and General Aoun, because this man is supported by General Aoun, who is an ally of Hezbollah, but... Um, he, uh, this is where a kind of identity problem arises, you know. Um, so it, it's very controversial here. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think there was any hookup with the, the French case in Iran. I would be pretty much um, surprised. But it is an ongoing issue here. It's been, like most things, put, under, put on hold by the coronavirus problem or crisis. Um, but I think it hasn't, it's not going to go away. Yep, we're asking about whether sectarianism can be changed, especially when people are accusing Iran and uh, obviously Shia fans here of uh, importing the virus. Um, I think lamentably that from the moment that Hezbollah and Amal supporters, if not officially, uh, started attacking the demonstration downtown, and in fact the whole reaction of Hezbollah was quite noticeable, for example, at the beginning of the revolution, if you watched Hezbollah TV, and the other TV stations, some of which were very pro-revolution. Uh, one of the pro-revolution ones had as its kind of running strapline in the top left-hand corner. It said, uh, Lebanon rises up, Lebanon yantafad. Um, whereas on Hezbollah, it uh, had a similar tagline, but it said, playing with fire in Lebanon. So you could see a very uh, clear split, even very early on. Um, Hezbollah has been hostile 
to the revolution from the beginning uh, and dragging with it its allies, well, uh, quite uh, willingly, its allies, uh, Amal, the Shia movement. So that, in a way, introduced a sectarian element from the very beginning because they were kind of out of the revolution and they are the major political forces in the Shia camp. So whether now a lot of idealistic, idealistic people early in the revolution were saying, oh, that's great, that's the end of sectarianism in Lebanon. Well, I think that's maybe a bit wishful and naive because some people think that when it comes to voting, the Lebanese will largely fall back into their traditional patterns of uh, supporting their factional sectarian leaders as, the, as they always have. Um, uh, one of my friends who's a very acute observer thinks that if you scratch the surface, <clears throat> perhaps only 5% of the Lebanese really believe in non-sectarianism and would actually vote in a non-sectarian way. Um, obviously, there's a need for leadership on an issue like that, but when the leaders themselves are sectarian and benefiting from it and have whole sy systems of patronage uh, attached to it, <clears throat> they're not going to be the ones who change it. So, kind of very depressingly and lamentably, <clears throat> I don't think there has been a kind of anti-sectarian revolution, which may be another reason why people <clears throat> have kind of stopped, why the revolution has lost quite a bit of its initial support, because it was all very lovely at the time, but there are harsh realities there, and the, the sectarian political class seems to have managed to A, survive, and B, reassert itself uh, on the ground. Um, but let's let's face it uncharted waters lie ahead there will be very very hard times it could last I mean, some people say it's going to take 10 years to get the banking system back into a kind of credible position um, there will be at least several years of severe hardship and who knows what will come out of that maybe we will see some serious change um, but a lot of people say that the Lebanon that emerges from all this in 10 years' time will be very different from the Lebanon we know today, um, but that nobody can really predict what shape it will be. One friend said it would take 10 Einsteins with some massive computers to try and figure out all the possibilities and still wouldn't know which was the most likely. Um, but sectarianism is still there, and for the moment it's not going to go away. Let me just look. Mm. I'm being asked by Mohammed Sarhan whether the protest could reignite after the COVID crisis is over. <clears throat> We've sort of gone into that to some extent. Um, the, the, obviously, people in the Harak, in the in the Thawra, believe yes, because they think the streets are going to be flooded by a lot more very angry, jobless people, and that the whole economic and financial crisis will be so much worse that it will boost them. Other people uh, think that people will be so immersed in, in financial and economic problems that they won't have the energy left to go and, and demonstrate. Um, but certainly, what you can say for sure is that the, the crisis will be much graver, uh, that there will be trouble of one sort or another. Uh, a lot will depend on whether the banks can be saved or the financial system can be saved from collapsing and that depends on the government coming up with a credible plan getting IMF uh, approval of it and international funding coming in to keep the the junkie alive as it were giving him his dose of drugs that he very much needs um, 
But the uh, a part of the engine of this thing, for example, was up in Tripoli, which we haven't talked about, but it was one of the main engines of the revolution because it is the poorest city in Lebanon, probably in the whole of the Mediterranean basin. And its catchment area, Akar and so on, is the most poverty-stricken part of Lebanon. <clears throat> so, for example, we could see a kind of fragmentation uh, where uh, regional uh, considerations sort of take over already, for example, in Sidon. Um, they have a different scene going on there. The, the, the Saha, the, the square, where, which was the kind of center of the revolution there, has kept going. It's a, it's a kind of distribution hub for medical and uh, food supplies and so on. Um, and it's, it's got its own sort of regional dynamic and the same in Tripoli. So we could see a sort of fragmentation of, of Lebanon uh, if things really don't pull together nationally. So, as I say, the future of the Iraq itself as a national movement may be in doubt, but um, I think we may see them moving more towards working at the municipal level, at grassroots level, uh, rather than trying to, for example, contest national elections where they could risk being being basically massacred at the polls um, unless they get themselves organized. But at the moment, they're, they're just not organized. They don't have leaders. They don't have people you can say, oh, yes, I'll vote for him because they don't know them. Um, and that's a big problem. You can't present yourself as some kind of amorphous blob on on, an, on a polling slip. You know, you've got to be there making speeches and so on. Um, so as I said, the, the whole future of the Herak, the <clears throat> revolution is very much up in the air. Let's have a look. Do you think the process should continue on the streets or the Herak and independent political parties, Fadawa and Fadawa Communist Party and National Bloc? <clears throat> Oops, keeps moving. Well, um, coming back to specifically the, the election question, um, yes, they, they have been discussing taking part in the elections, but it's a little bit left hanging at the moment because of um, the fact that, you know, they're not organized and um, the politicians have actually made something of a comeback and so on. Um, but they've got an awful lot of, again, as I say, there's no actual single forum for this, but there are a lot of um, internet groups who are keeping up a constant dialogue. They're having meetings you know, like this on, um, on internet uh, media, on social media. Um, and they, they will be thinking about trying to prepare for elections. They were doing it before the, the clampdown happened. They're probably still at it now. But uh, from what I, what I understand, it's pretty much left floating at the moment. There's no decisions being taken and no way forward. Again, because they're, they're really not very organized. There's at least 10 groups uh, taking political action and they're not coordinated. Um, so a lot more work needs to be done. Uh, and it's going to be a long-term thing. They're not going to win the next elections. It has to be incremental and from within, and it's going to take a long time. Let's have a look what else we've got here. Uh, Andy Simons. That's very right. During the return of all the experts want to fly really <clears throat> Yes, um, Sabria is, is talking there about the possibility of the place being flooded with, with more microbes when the, the flights start happening again. Um, the airport was very quick to close here, um, but you're quite right. There could be a lot of uh, Lebanese coming back to visit their families, etc. Once, um, you know, once the, the the flights are reopened, but that may not happen for for one reason, and that is um, before. The virus struck and we closed down. Um, not many. Uh, another reason for the economic or worsening of the economic crisis is that um, 
Lebanese stopped coming back. I mean, uh, they didn't want to get caught up in street trouble and so on. A lot of things had closed down. They weren't going to have much fun. People were saying, no, no, don't come now. So unless, uh, I mean, assuming that the crisis, I mean, the economic crisis is bound to continue, uh, we may not see a sort of huge upsurge of people coming back. Um, so it remains to be seen, but that they do take uh, measures at uh, Beirut Airport. You get your temperature taken and all that kind of thing. Um, and if they're coming from infected areas, they may not be allowed to get on planes. So uh, I think Lebanon will cross that bridge when it comes to it. Let's have a look. Uh, does that take the word? I think, I think we're out of questions. Yes. Yep, I think I think that's it, Nadine. Yeah. And it's nearly time as well. Yeah, we're nearly, nearly one Um Okay, well, if nobody's got any more questions. You're there, right, okay. Thank you, yeah. everyone, for attending. And this has been recorded, so if you want to re-listen or if you want to share it with people who couldn't make it, then please do.